Hello, and welcome to the show with Joe. In this episode, we'll be talking about the first chapter of Carl Sagan's The Demon Haunted World. It's a beautiful book about the struggle of our culture and our handling of pseudoscience and science, and most specifically towards those that are illiterate in science and prefer to dive into conspiracy and pseudoscience instead of the the wondrous mysteries of the universe that are at our fingertips. In this chapter and this episode, I'm going to be doing it a little bit differently this time, so I'm just trying to get my, my poop together. And you always wonder, you know, when does one get their poop together? And when they do, what do they do with it? I always wondered that, you know. I got my poop together. Hmm. Got all this poop. What do I do with it now? Do I make uh, cups with it? Do I make poopy cups to drink water out of? No, that's not... That makes no sense. Why would I do that? You know, I'd probably hurt myself by drinking water with fecal matter in it. Um, you know, you could always try to make a poopy theme park if you have a lot of poop. Because, you know, if you get all your poop together, it's probably a lot of poop depending on the age. Um, to be honest with you, I'm probably drop some massive, massive turds sometimes. So, you know, it's probably a lot of poop. So, you know, you could probably make a theme park out of it. And, uh, <laughs> well, you know, charge people to come in, get some revenue. In this pandemic, I mean, a lot of people don't really care about the coronavirus, and so, yeah, why not just swim around in my fecal matter? It's about the same thing that you're doing without wearing your mask out there. Anyway, um, I totally digressed and got off the point there while I get my, my poop together. Try not to curse, but fuck it. All right, um, there it is. So, in this episode, we'll be talking about the most precious thing, chapter one, in The Demon Haunted World. And I thoroughly enjoyed this chapter. I learned a couple things. I researched a couple more things to when I got to those aha moments where I was just like, holy shit, did that actually happen? Yep, it did. Let me let me look at those results. And uh, yeah, we'll go through it in this podcast. And I, uh, I hope that you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed reading the content and coming up with this material for all y'all. And with that, I give to you the show with Joe. Brought to you by nobody. Again, just me. Chapter 1. The Most Precious Things. Carl Sagan likes to start his chapters out with a quote um, from many different places. This one comes from none other than Albert Einstein himself. The quote reads, All our science, measured against reality, is primitive and childlike, and yet it is the most precious thing we have. Dropping knowledge, Albert Einstein. Mmm. All right. So, this chapter starts out with Carl recounting an experience he had with 
an overly enthusiastic cab driver that picked him up from the airport one day. And this cab driver had an affinity for conspiracy theories. At least that's what Carl Sagan noticed right away. The driver got really excited that he was able to drive a renowned scientist around New York City. I think that's where it is. And so in, in this drive, he asks him a bunch of questions about what he thinks is real science. He mentions extraterrestrials in the Air Force Base and uh, Nostradamus, astrology, etc. Um, each time he, he uh, brought up a conspiracy theory in conversation with Carl, Carl disappointed him every time. To quote, As we drove through the rain, I could see him getting glummer and glummer. I was dismissing not just some errant doctrine, but a precious facet of his inner life. And yet, there's so much more in real science that's equally exciting, more mysterious, a greater intellectual challenge, as well as being a lot closer to the truth. Did he know about the molecular building blocks of life sitting out there in the cold, tenuous gas between the stars? What about the raising of the Himalayas when India went crashing into Asia? And Carl goes on to say this to the cab driver, and the cab driver hasn't heard about any of these discoveries of real science. He, he didn't even hear of one of my favorite things that Carl brings up in this conversation, which was uh, quantum indeterminacy. In physics, there's something called Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. No, it's not a... It's not be a failed chemist and make meth like like they do in uh, Breaking Bad with Walter White. There's a theory in quantum mechanics that pretty much says that you can't know the position of a particle and the momentum of a particle at the same time. In other words, if you know where the particle is, the less likely you know how fast it's going. If you know how fast it's going the less likely you know where it is. Could you imagine what this could mean? And what it does mean? And, and all of the different thoughts that you can make your head go around and spin around and think about what the, what the hell is going on? Like, come on. After I learned about this theory, and after I learned about quantum mechanics and my college experience, my thoughts ran wild. <laughs> my philosophical thoughts just, like, jumped off of walls. You couldn't tell where my thoughts were going just as much as you couldn't tell where a particle was going if you knew how fast it was going. It was crazy. So, you know, I would think about things like free will, whether we have it, you know, if, if, if there's quantum indeterminacy, do you really have free will? Um, is it too complicated to understand? Anyway, I don't want to go too far into free will because once you get me on that soapbox, I can go on for hours. The very fact, the very things, particles, that make us up are difficult to measure should really make you think, and really make you wonder, rather. It's crazy, man. Real science is mysterious as fuck. And you don't need pseudoscience to get that little part in you to be happy and, and wondrous and, and to think and be excited. But anyway, quantum mechanics, mindfuck, amazing. Very difficult to understand, especially when you get into math. It's been a while since I've done it, but... um. Could you imagine a world, though, where, where people were trying to understand how quantum mechanics works rather than listening to someone read them tarot cards? 
and and listening to to some crazy person tell you that you know Sasquatch exists or or maybe Sasquatch doesn't exist I don't know I mean in the world of cameras and phones if Sasquatch exists it would be obvious you'd have so much evidence you'd probably have DNA you would have so much anyway beside the point again this episode I'm going a little bit different I'm not really scripted this time so it might sound a little choppy so that's what I meant about getting my shit together I'm doing it right now we'll see how it goes but yeah you imagine if people were more interested in science rather than pseudoscience um, we'd probably be a lot further along scientifically possibly further along culturally in our politics um, we'd probably be respecting each other a lot more than we do now, you know, with what's going on in the world with uh, Black Lives Matter, which, by the way, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter, just so you know. And maybe we wouldn't be saying those things if if people were more interested in, in truth. Maybe the world would be closer with more efficient forms of travel, even. Maybe we'd be able to go to China in 10 minutes, you know, if we were able to. It sounds kind of impossible, but... You never know. We don't. We don't know what we don't know, and there's so much to know. And I wish our thinking power, as a human race, was designated towards science and not pseudoscience, astrology, and all the crap that people just fill their lives with. Maybe even this pandemic would have been handled better. People wouldn't be doubting the scientists as much as they do today. Instead of uh, scoffing at the idea of wearing a mask. You would just listen and say, well, this scientist and this evidence is telling me that it helps. If it helps, you know, my 70-year-old grandmother possibly not get COVID-19, then hell, I'll just wear the damn mask. It's not a big deal. Listen to the scientist. Um, and, and God, if Carl Zagan was here today, he'd probably be rolling. Well, if he was here, he wouldn't be rolling in his grave because he'd be alive. So he'd probably be scoffing at a lot of people right now in the most humble way possible because Carl Sagan is an amazing person, at least based on the literature and videos and whatnot that I've seen of him. Carl Sagan also is the one who wrote the book I'm covering right now, just to remind you. If Carl Sagan were to write this book today, he would say things that are more aligned with conspiracy theories that are sadly politically charged. I mean, right now, Carl is probably rolling in his grave with all the crazy crap going on with the climate change deniers out there and the people who don't believe in vaccines and and the people who believe that the earth is flat. That's a whole, it's a whole thing that apparently is a thing, and I don't quite understand it. And even with this pandemic that we're dealing with, people are going around saying it's a hoax and, you know, the flu is the same damn thing, and it's obviously not the same damn thing. Yeah, we don't understand the flu completely, but we understand it well enough that we can understand the side effects and how to deal with it in the best way we can. With the coronavirus, we're still learning. And the very fact that scientists don't fully understand COVID-19, it should humble people that are listening. You know, you should, you should think that if a scientist says one thing this day and says another thing in two weeks, and they completely conflict with the two different things they just said, they're willing to go out on a limb and say, this is the evidence I have now, and this is what I think we should be doing to not let this thing get worse. Versus two weeks down the line, maybe they're saying, we don't need to wear masks anymore. It's not a big deal anymore. You shouldn't be saying, oh, you shouldn't throw up your hands and be like, well, scientists don't know anything. They're freaking stupid. You should really be saying, oh, wow, they're very honest. 
I mean, the problem is that people don't understand science and how science even works, the scientific method and how our lives as scientists, I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm a full-blown scientist anymore. I'm more of a computer scientist writing code. So, but I, I understand, you know, in order to understand anything about the world, you have to understand what you don't understand in a way. To quote Socrates, you don't know what you don't know, right? Uh, he says something like that, something about not knowing shit. I forget. My mind fails me here. But anyway, the problem here is that people don't understand science. And if they did, I think we'd be in a better world. You wouldn't see people trying to punch each other in the face for not wearing a mask. You would see people, well, you know, just wearing the freaking mask. Everybody be wearing it. Anyway, I'm just going on and on about the stupid mask thing. Um, whatever you believe about it, you're probably wrong. So stop believing what you believe. Listen to the medical professionals. Listen to the science. Um, don't don't listen to what you think. Don't listen to Fox. Don't listen to CNN even. Look for the truth. Read between the lines. Listen to the scientists and life will be better. <laughs> anyway, let's go back to this. Carl goes on as he does. So humble and smooth. Mr. Buckley, who's the cab driver I mentioned earlier. Mr. Buckley, well-spoken, intelligent, curious, had heard virtually nothing of modern science. He had a natural appetite for the wonders of the universe. He wanted to know about science. It's just that all the science had gotten filtered out before it reached him. Our cultural motifs I said that really weird, by the way. Motifs? I meant to say motifs? Our educational system, our communications media, had failed this man. What the society permitted to trickle through was mainly pretense and confusion. It had never taught him how to distinguish real science from cheap imitation. He knew nothing about how science works. Kind of like what I was just talking about. So think about this for a second. What do you get fed in your lives that you haphazardly agree to believing in? Do you listen to Fox News and just believe what Sean Hannity says? Or believe what whoever the hell else is talking on that godforsaken show? Do you listen to CNN and listen to whoever is the Sean Hannity of CNN and believe everything that they say? Do you listen to scientists ever? Do you know how to distinguish between real science and false science. Do you even care? That's the big question. Do you even care that you don't understand science? In the world that we live in, where I'm talking to you through a mic created by science and technology that is plugged into a laptop that can play video games at a ridiculously nice level. Yeah, it's not one of those nice built standing desktop gaming systems, but just an HP Omen. But hell, man, it can render Skyrim pretty well. And Skyrim is a pretty freaking dank-ass game. It has a lot of stuff in it. Again, wouldn't be here without scientists. And those are just cool things that, aren't here, that are here now because of what science has brought us. So do you care? Do you care that you don't understand how, how the laptop's working or how, how this mic is working? I mean, yeah, I don't know everything but i care about trying to learn as much as i can about the things that are interesting about our world and it's pretty cool to really go out there and really try to understand the crap that you don't understand 
And it's better than just funneling through the stupid TikToks on social media or the memes that you're seeing that provide no resources. God, do I hate memes for that reason. They're great to get out quick, short, informational messages, but when they have messages that have no scientific evidence to back them, God, is it toxic. And having our Facebook timeline just cluttered with politically charged opinions all over Facebook with no evidence, no no resources even sometimes. Um, sometimes you'll have people dealing with Photoshop. I think people forget about the fact that you can go and render an image and make it look like it wasn't originally photographed. And that is freaking scary. Again, even that terrible thing about changing the way photos look wouldn't be able to happen without science. Anyway, I'm going on about all this crazy stuff. And what I'm trying to say is, I think it's kind of hard to care. And I, I wish I knew a way to help people care a little bit more. And if it wasn't for that bitch Carol Baskin, we'd be in a much better place where, you know, Tigers would probably roam free, and I don't even know why I went down that road, but Tiger King was a pretty dumb show, like I admit. It was very interesting, but again, did you learn much from it other than Carol Baskin killed her husband? Was it useful to you? Not really. I guess it is when you're trying to talk to people and connect on a certain level, but gosh, would it be amazing to go to my friend's house and talk about Heisenberg's uncertainty principle and how crazy it is and and just articulate what we think about the science that's out there um it's rare for me to get to that point anymore after being out of college it's it's weird times for me i I, this is why i'm kind of doing this podcast uh it lets me kind of get my thoughts out there even though no one else is really talking to me Uh, maybe eventually i'll get someone to to be on the show with me but uh for now back to this book This book was published in 1996, to remind you. I was only like four years old. Shit, I just gave you my birth year. If you can do math. If you can't do math, well, yeah, gosh. Anyway, um, (laughs) Carl Sagan wasn't the only scientist warning us about the dumbing down of our society. And as we go through this book, you will see that Not much has changed from when he wrote this book, and unfortunately, some things got worse, at least in my opinion. But then again, my opinion of 96 versus now is kind of weird because, you know, when I was four years old, I didn't really have much of an opinion other than I liked my slide, and when we moved from Philly to Shemokin, you know, I I wanted that slide. Why didn't you let me have that slide, Dad? Why? Anyway, I think it's really important that you really think about the information that you're digesting. And when you watch Fox News, if it's your news of choice, which I hope it isn't, and if it is, that's fine. But I really hope that you're super skeptical of everything that they say, Um, although I have a belief that you probably aren't, unfortunately. But maybe you are, and maybe I'm being shallow, or whatever word it is. I'm not really a linguist whatever the heck the other word is for people who are really good at vocabulary. But be skeptical of everything that you listen to. Even what I'm talking about here, be skeptical of me. I could be wrong about half the things I'm saying, but I'm just trying to be honest. Um, So be skeptical and learn how to dive into sources. When Fox News say something about how climate change isn't real and they bring up some evidence to quote-unquote directly inflict 
wounds on the scientists who, who've researched climate science for years, be very skeptical of that because most scientists, and when I say most, it's pretty much all of them, they know that we contribute to climate change. I mean, just think about it. It's very, it's, it's dumb to think that we don't. If you think that we don't, turn on your car, put your mouth on the exhaust pipe, and if you can breathe it in and be fine, well, you're a fucking monster. But anyway, if you're not, if, if the point is that we're 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 shooting toxic things out into our atmosphere all the freaking time, and without even thinking about science, if you shoot toxic things into any living organism, which the Earth is practically a living organism, it's toxic coming from your cars, mainly from big ass industry. But we're contributing to sea level rises, the warming of the Earth. Things are going to get worse and worse. We've already been experiencing weird-ass storms and longer, hot-ass summers. And even even the winter, this last winter was... Not that this even is really much evidence, but this last winter felt like it wasn't even a winter. Barely had any snow. But anyway, um, I'm really digressing again. Sorry, guys. So, back to where I was. Be skeptical of your sources. Most scientists agree in climate change. If Fox News, a media outlet who doesn't have much credibility in science, says that climate change is false, they're probably fucking wrong. Maybe you should consider looking at a different news outlet. Or maybe you should consider just fucking not looking at the news that much. You know, don't let your brain get rotted with malformed opinions. Be skeptical and learn about looking at sources. You know, if you read an article online, one of the things I do is uh, I'll read something um, and it'll say this, this, and this happened. And if they don't quote sources, I'm very skeptical of whether or not that article is being truthful. And a good article will quote your sources and you'll see sources listed at the bottom or as like a little number next to the words. Um, you click on those and it goes to where the source is. And if you really care about the subject and whatever it is, you, you go and research that source and you just make sure it's valid. It's coming from maybe a scientific journal. Um, and you can even go as far as reading the actual journal that the article's quoting. I've done this before where I had a, one of my uh, cousins who's super conservative, love him to death. We always have arguments together and it's, it's always an interesting time. He quoted something in an article about climate change being false and I looked at the article, got to the source, read the source, and in the source it literally said that our findings are not final and there's a lot more research to be done and things like everything that we find here is not necessarily true like science would report. And what happened was this conservative article took a couple words out of the journal of the source that they took it from, quoted the source, but in a way misquoted it in terms of spreading misinformation and saying you know, these scientists found this out without even talking about the caveat that they put in there saying that it still needs to be peer-reviewed and tested. And I'm pretty sure nothing came of that. So again, being skeptical and researching sources is very important. And the source thing, you know, when you're in high school and they're talking about like work cited page, uh, it wasn't, you know, the best way to teach you how to research, but it's sort of like that, you know, make sure that what they're quoting is real and that they're not missing the point of what they're quoting because my goodness the media that we got to deal with today and especially in information age with social media you got to really be freaking smart to dive through and and just deflect all of the negative bullshit 
that you see people posting because people will post memes that, that aren't even true. They just post them because they like to post them or something. They just have that opinion or maybe they just don't know. And that's kind of the problem. There's a lot of ignorance in the world and we really need a lot of people to be less ignorant. But anyway, this is a great segue to the next part of this chapter. I am talking and I'm talking. I might need another beer. By the way, I'm drinking a Dirt Wolf double IPA, 8.7% alcohol per volume by Victory. It's a good IPA with a pretty cool wolf on it. I'm digressing like a motherfucker. So, Sagan gives examples of how many books and media are written and produced that serve fiction versus how many there are that serve nonfiction or factual. Fiction being fake, made up, you know, like Lord of the Rings beautiful lovely movies i didn't really enjoy the books so you know you can hate me for that but whatever um so we indulge in a lot of fantasy there's not a lot of factual books out there when you compare it to how many non-factual books there are which shows you that people love to deal with fantasy they love to talk about things that aren't real so how much of your indulgence is in science or reality how much of your time do you spend thinking about real stuff versus fake stuff? So, like, I play a lot of video games. And it's fun. Perfect thing to do when you you want to hang out with your friends. Like, we play a lot of Call of Duty. It's a lot of fun. And, and, you know, it's all fake. It's all video games and you're indulging in a little fantasy life of, I guess, killing people. Which is kind of fucked up and another topic of what's wrong with the world. Um, violence. But um, how much of our indulgence is in science or reality? I'm going to say that probably not much, unfortunately. And as I grew up and became an adult, all I heard from and all I hear from most of the fellow adults in my life are regurgitations of, of what they watched on the news. I rarely get to talk to people that have formulated their own opinions about anything. And if I do get to talking, I rarely get the chance to partake in an actual debate in any subject. It's either you believe in what I believe or you don't. I, I agree to disagree, um, which kills me. Um, and, and the problem with that is that not a lot of people understand what debates are and how you're supposed to debate. And people dive too much into their emotions. I dive into my emotions a lot sometimes too, but when I'm in a debate, I really like to try to keep it rational as much as you can. And I'm sure there's a lot of people who may or may not listen to this and be like, you're a freaking liar. You were totally not rational that one time that we talked about that thing that one time. Man, that might be true. You know, we're all human. We're not going to be perfect, but... My goodness, would it be great to be able to talk to people about all kinds of things, you know. You know, do you believe we have free will and what are your thoughts about that and bringing in science to, to kind of prove your point of whether or not we have it, you know. Philosophy is fun and, you know, having debates about political things like, you know, is abortion safe? Well, yeah, it is safe at certain points in the pregnancy, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, you can go on and on about a lot of different things. But when you talk to people and, and instead of them believing in the science of, you know, the fetus or, or of the embryo, and they just tout their opinion that is based on pseudoscience, pretty much, and religion, which is, is fine. Um, I, I mean, life is life is life, but at the same time, you have the same people that they, they don't believe you should abort a baby because it's a life and all lives matter. But, you know, when someone like George Floyd dies, well, they don't say anything until people keep saying Black Lives Matter, and they say, well, all lives matter dick and then all of a sudden you're arguing about things that make no sense 
and you're saying that you believe you know you should never abort a baby but you don't really care about the babies that are born every day in poverty i mean you might care but your actions don't and it's just fucking crazy and you get in debates with people about a lot of things where they don't back up their thoughts with with facts they back it up with emotion and and opinion which is kind of toxic because you want to talk about a lot of the the facts that you can you know be as rational as possible sometimes when i'm talking to people and debating or at least trying to debate I'll, I'll get things like you know if you respect my opinion I'll respect yours and and sometimes I can't really respect someone's opinion on things that are actually not opinions like um like someone's a quote-unquote opinion that climate change is not real or that evolution is, is false and it's not true when they have no real evidence to prove that it isn't true and there's overwhelming evidence that evolution is a real thing I mean come on or things like the age of the earth. If you still believe that it's 6,000 years old, you're freaking insane. Because science backs up that it's not. It's way older. Among other things, there's so many different things that you get into debates with other adults that they just don't care to know about the truth. They only care to know about what they believe is the truth, which is okay. But it's not at the same exact time. Your beliefs are often not true. I have a lot of beliefs that are probably not true. For instance, when when I was younger, I used to believe in, in horoscopes. You know, my dad got me into them. And then I learned more about science and more about life and had more experiences and realized, why the hell was I ever believing in that? And I, I believed in it. Like, I literally, like, would would date somebody, right? This is weird, by the way. A little personal. I'd date somebody, look at my astrological sign, look at their astrological sign, go to a dumbass website on the internet about astrology romance and see if we match. I was fucking dumb. That belief was dumb. And I'm telling you now that I have beliefs that are probably wrong. I've had beliefs that were wrong. The whole point of this book is to show you that you are not infallible. Or to reword it without double negative, you are a fallible person. You are a fallible creature. You have the high chance of being wrong every day and every minute of your life. And you got to be aware of that. And a lot of this book goes over this. And again, I am digressing. This is me not reading from a script, guys. So, hope you like it. <laughs> so... Healthy skepticism is what this is all about. Make sure that you can doubt things that you, even you believe as well as what other people may try to tell you to believe. Um, to quote Carl Sagan in this book, Skepticism does not sell well. A bright and curious person who relies entirely on popular culture to be informed is hundreds or thousands of times more likely to come upon a fable which is a fake story or thing, I guess, and treat it uncritically instead of assessing the information balanced and soberly. And here is the perfect example, by the way, of why I absolutely love Carl Sagan. If you remember Mr. Buckley, the cab driver, he addresses the cab driver in a humane way to quote, maybe Mr. Buckley should know to be more skeptical about what's dished out to him by popular culture. But apart from that, it's hard to see how it's his fault. He simply accepted what the most widely available and accessible sources of information claimed was true. For his naivete, he was systematically misled and bamboozled. 
we all getting bamboozled up in here, man. All of us. We're getting bamboozled left and right. Carl saying, I love you for using bamboozled. Because bamboozlery, if that's even a word, freaking happens all the damn time. I can scroll through my Facebook and find like 15 bamboozlers in probably like 15 posts. It's it's insane. It happens all the damn time. And you can get it from all your news sources, etc., etc. So, to go on, and to quote Carl even more, because I love what he has to say. I think he sounds better than me, so... All over the world, there are enormous numbers of smart, even gifted, people who harbor a passion for science, but that passion is unrequited. Surveys suggest that some 95% of Americans are scientifically illiterate. That's just the same fraction as those African Americans, almost all of them slaves, who were illiterate, reading-wise, just before the Civil War, when severe penalties were enforced for anyone who taught a slave to read. Of course, there's a degree of arbitrariness about any determination of illiteracy, whether it applies to language or to science. But anything like 95% illiteracy is extremely serious. So when I read this, I wondered, you know, when was the last time we took a survey or, or anything about scientific illiteracy in America? And the last one I could find in my, my internet search was from February 27th, 2007 by uh, the Michigan State University, where they found that 72% of Americans are scientifically illiterate. So this is slightly better than what Sagan came up with or found in his studies in 1996. 72% of Americans are scientifically illiterate right now, or at least they were in 2007. Hopefully that number is better today, but I couldn't find any more recent data. Regardless, 72% is a pretty alarming number for people who don't understand what science is or how it works. It probably explains a lot of the bamboozlers out there. They're bamboozling us, guys. Stay away from the bamboozlers. Call them out. Make sure people know that they're being bamboozled on Facebook. In a nice way, I guess. So, to go on in this chapter, quote, Every generation worries that educational standards are decaying. One of the oldest short essays in human history, dating from Sumer some 4,000 years ago, laments that the young are disastrously more ignorant than the generation immediately preceding. 2,400 years ago, the aging and grumpy Plato in Book 7 of The Laws, gave his definition of scientific literacy. By the way, Plato is one of my homeboys. Love Plato. But Plato said, Who is unable to count one, two, three, or to distinguish odd from even numbers, or is unable to count at all, or reckon night and day, and who is totally unacquainted with the revolution of the sun and moon and the other stars, all free men, I conceive, should learn as much of these branches of knowledge as every child in Egypt is taught when he learns the alphabet. In what country arithmetical games have been invented for the use of mere children, which they learn as pleasure and amusement, I have late in life heard with amazement of our ignorance in these matters. To me, we appear to be more like pigs, oink, oink, than men, and I am quite ashamed, not only of myself, but of all Greeks. Oof. 
big oof. And to uh, quote Sagan a little bit more, I don't know to what extent ignorance of science and mathematics contributed to the decline of ancient Athens, but I know that the consequences of scientific literacy are far more dangerous in our time than in any time that has come before. It is perilous and foolhardy for the average citizen to remain ignorant about global warming, say, or ozone depletion, air pollution, toxic and radioactive waste, acid rain, topsoil erosion, tropical deforestation, exponential population growth. Jobs and wages depend on science and technology. And I'm going to be honest, I don't know too much about all of the topics he just mentioned, but in reading it, it makes me definitely want to go in and learn more about them. And I know a little bit more about, you know, the air pollution and ozone depletion and so on and so forth, and a little bit about the uh, toxicity and radioactive waste and and so on. But, you know, we're all learning, and, and the whole point is to try to learn as much as you can and hopefully be a lifelong learner. That's the dream that I want to provide for my kids whenever I have kids. And I hope that parents who listen to this podcast feel the same way. But, I mean, think about this pandemic we're dealing with, the coronavirus, the COVID-19 a lot of the jobs are still staying afloat because of being able to conduct teleconferences, video conferences, and, and so on. Being able to communicate with each other from home, being able to work from home from your computer and, and you know log in through a, a VPN, a virtual private network, and, and be able to still do your job safely and maybe even more effectively. For me, it's been way more effective. I have way less people bothering me, and I get so much more done, I think, and I'm also happier, so... I've been loving the pandemic for that reason, and I, and I love science for enabling some jobs to still stay open, especially when you're a computer scientist like me. I wouldn't still be in my job if it wasn't for the fact that I work on a computer all the time. Thanks, science. And for you know all you essential employees out there, which I have a good amount of friends who are, science is there for you too. You know They came up with guidelines, whether you like them or not. Scientists have been trying to help with trying to reduce the spread for you guys out there. You know, with using things like mask protections, like face shields and so on, and, and glass dividers being installed. And just thinking about the very fact that we have hand sanitizer. We have a very easy way to clean our hands, which we know is one of the most effective ways to deter disease. So, holy crap, you can put hand sanitizer in your pocket. You, you know, you touch someone's, you put your finger in someone's mouth, because for some reason, maybe you, I don't know, maybe you're a dentist. You put a finger in someone's mouth. You're probably using gloves at this point, so now that my point doesn't make sense. But still, gloves, invented by science. Industry, you know, without science, you wouldn't have a lot of the crap we deal with. And hand sanitizers is one of those things that, just like, holy crap, it's so convenient to be able to clean your hands, kills 99% of germs, etc., etc., whatever, whatever. There's a lot of things that science have given us to help deter disease. And, and that's what makes our lives last longer and us to get less sick than we would if we didn't have science enabling us to be better. If we didn't have science today, this pandemic would be far, far, far worse than it is right now. And I know there was like a mass hysteria when this all broke out, you know, because of the media being a little crazy, I guess. But it would be so much worse than it is now if, if we didn't have science on our side, science and technology. A long time ago, they used to burn bodies of people who had disease. We would be literally seeing bodies being burned on the street right now if it wasn't for science. Science helps us with so damn much. So be grateful, my friends. Go back to Carl Sagan's book. 
keep going on here. Quote, if our nation can't manufacture high quality and low price products that people want to buy, then industries will continue to drift away and transfer a little more prosperity to other parts of the world, which you see nowadays. Consider the social ramifications of fission and fusion power, supercomputers, data highways, abortion, radon, massive reductions, and strategic weapons. And when he says strategic weapons, he's talking about nuclear weapons. To go on with his list, addiction, government eavesdropping on the lives of its citizens. Oh my, Edward Snowden told us about this very thing. Hmm, wow, not only do the government eavesdrop on us, but Facebook does. Yeah, and so does Google, and so do a lot of other people. You talk about that Taco Bell? You're probably gonna get an ad for Taco Bell. Crap, I'll probably get an ad for Taco Bell now that I just mentioned it. I don't really want a chalupa, but thanks anyway, eavesdroppers. To go on with his uh, list about you considering the social ramifications, he continues with high-resolution TV, airline and airport safety, fetal tissue transplants, health costs, food additives, drugs to help people with mania or depression or schizophrenia, animal rights, superconductivity, morning-after pills, which I'm sure a lot of people on this podcast have used those morning-after pills. Thank you, science, for not giving me a baby I didn't want. Alleged hereditary antisocial predispositions, space stations, going to Mars, finding cures for AIDS and cancer. Imagine what our world would be if science could solve these problems, and especially if we had more funding and more people aimed at solving these problems. That's what he's talking about here. And he goes on to talk more into the politics of these matters to quote, How can we affect national policy or even make intelligent decisions about our own lives if we don't grasp the underlying issues? Of the 535 members of the U.S. Congress, rarely in the 20th century have as many as 1% had any significant background in science. The last scientifically literate president may have been Thomas Jefferson. That motherfucker was a long time ago, in case you didn't realize. Anyway, I went and I looked at what that number looks like now. And through my research, I found something called the Congressional Research Service. And it looks like they kind of document, you know, the backgrounds, occupations, and degrees of people in Congress currently and in Congresses before. And the current Congress we're in, uh, 535, which is always 535, it's including the Senate and the House. There were only 41 people in Congress that have any background in a kind of science. That's 7%, 41 out of 535. So slightly better, but it probably should be higher. And... To break down what those who those 41 people are, this is counting 16 physicians, because I thought, you know, medical science is very important and it should be a part of this list. Five dentists. Teeth are kind of important, so yeah, let's add that in there. Three veterinarians. They understand science. And by the way, the whole point of this is, you know, are they scientifically literate? Dentists, yeah, they probably are, most likely. So are veterinarians. Two nurses, they got to go through a lot of science in their schooling, one optometrist, 
I know for a fact that they know science. They have to learn optics and physics, and that stuff isn't super easy, but it's, it's definitely fun. I remember enjoying it. But anyway, one physician assistant, going back to, you know, medical science is important too. One physicist, hurrah, one physicist, yay. Come on, we can do better than that. By the way, I have a degree in physics, so it's my little heart there. One chemist, 11 engineers. That, my friends, are the only people in Congress that have scientific backgrounds. Think about that. The people who are making policy changes and funding everything that we fund, only 7% of them are scientifically literate or have a scientific background. Maybe I shouldn't say scientifically literate, but the fact that only 7% of them have had a background in science is kind of alarming. So to finish, quoting Carl Sagan on this topic, So how do Americans decide these matters? How do they instruct their representatives? Who in fact makes these decisions? And on what basis? Think about that. 7% today in our Congress don't have any experience in science. Yet they're representing and they're funding and they're making policy changes without understanding. Hopefully the other politicians are listening to scientists and not letting their beliefs get in the way of what is truth. But the numbers don't lie. 7%. Hippocrates, the father of medicine. Some of you might know him from the Assassin's Creed game, The Odyssey. You find him in there when you uh, you go and have to consult a doctor about some sort of disease, and he's the only one that understands how medicine and diseases work, I suppose. Anyway, Hippocrates, the father of medicine, quoted by Carl Sagan, Men think epilepsy divine merely because they do not understand it. But if they called everything divine which they do not understand, why, there would be no end of divine things. To quote Carl Sagan, As knowledge of medicine improved since 4th century BC, there was more and more that we understood and less and less that had to be attributed to divine intervention, either in the causes or in the treatment of disease. Deaths and childbirths and infant mortality have decreased, lifetimes lengthened, and medicine has improved the quality of life for billions of us all over the planet. Hippocrates was one of the first medical practitioners, I suppose you can call him, to utilize scientific method. So this guy was pretty important to science and and to our medical world, hence the Hippocratic Oath. So to quote further, In the diagnosis of disease, Hippocrates introduced elements of the scientific method. He urged careful and meticulous observation. He quoted, Leave nothing to chance, Overlook nothing, combine contradictory observations, allow yourself enough time. Carl Sagan goes on, Before the invention of the thermometer, he charted the temperature curves of many diseases. He recommended that physicians be able to tell, from present symptoms alone, the probable past and future course of each illness. He stressed honesty. He was willing to admit the limitations of the physician's knowledge. He betrayed no embarrassment in confiding the posterity that more than half his patients were killed by the diseases he was treating. His options, of course, were limited. The drugs available to him were chiefly laxatives, emetics, and narcotics. Imagine imagine going to Hippocrates back in 4th century BC and being like coughing up a storm and your head has a 
you know, you have a head cold or something, and he's trying to treat you with a laxative. And you're just the victim of his observations. He's trying to learn more about, you know, what the heck is this disease that this person is going through. Coughing up a storm, and he treats you with some sort of laxative. And all of a sudden, you're coughing and coughing and coughing. And all of a sudden, you're pooping your pants a lot, if you're wearing pants. Which I think back then, they wore, like, robes and stuff. But could you imagine being that person that gets treated for a head cold? with a laxative this is a very important part about science you don't know how to treat a cold until you try things that you haven't tried before in order to treat it so when you think about it coughing and coughing you know i have this little plant that is sort of like a laxative makes you poop and fart i don't know if it'll really help but maybe other another component in it that i don't quite understand yet because i'm not like i don't have like a microscope and i can't understand the chemical composition of this plant but if i feed this to this person who has this head cold he might get the shits but his head cold might go away and imagine being that person doing that and feeling like he just made your stuff worse now that you have you have a head cold and all of a sudden you're, you're shitting up a storm but that's what science is all about. You're trying to cut away at all the stuff that you know doesn't work. So he gives the guy a laxative, and then the guy poops up a storm, still has a head cold, and that's when Hippocrates says, okay, this plant does not work for this cough. So to go on, societies are letting themselves be ignorant, and they always have, and sometimes they still do. <laughs> and uh, sometimes instead of embracing the science, societies often embraced a miraculous healing by prayer, chants, potions, horoscopes, and even amulets or crystals. Weird things that they think will just heal your cancers or your, your illness. Ignorance is bliss is one of the worst sayings that I've ever heard because it's quite the opposite. Ignorance is horrific. It's, it's people dying on the street. It's people getting burned to death because you might be a witch. Ignorance is not bliss. It might be for you in your head, you know, ignoring racism because of my white fragility, so therefore I'm blissful, and I don't need to care about whether or not I'm racist or this little microaggression is racist. Not that that's kind of part of this podcast, but the point being is letting yourself be ignorant and letting the society be ignorant is not a good thing. To go on and quote Carl Sagan, Diseases that once tragically carried off countless infants and children have been progressively mitigated and cured by science through the discovery of the microbial world via the insight that physicians and midwives should wash their hands and sterilize their instruments through nutrition, public health and sanitation measures, antibiotics, drugs, vaccines, the uncovering of the molecular structure of DNA, molecular biology, and gene therapy. In the developed world, at least, parents today have an enormously better chance of seeing their children live to adulthood. Smallpox has been wiped out worldwide. The area of our planet infested with malaria-carrying mosquitoes has dramatically shrunk. So there was actually a recent article that I read where scientists have actually discovered how to reduce malaria even further by infecting mosquitoes with a microbe that virtually blocks the mosquito and their offspring from carrying malaria in the first place. Isn't that freaking cool? I think that's pretty cool. Anyway, that was recent. That was like May of this year. Go on, quote Sagan. 
The number of years a child diagnosed with leukemia can expect to live has been increasing progressively, year by year. Science permits the Earth to feed about a hundred times more humans and under conditions much less grim than it could a few thousand years ago. The unfortunate thing is that you have religious institutions like Christian Science, which I haven't actually researched them until this podcast, and I've learned some very sad things about what Christian Science is. When you see churches that mention Christian Science, do not confuse them with the fact that they're not using real science. Christian science is definitely not a good religious group. To quote from an internet source I found about Christian science, the church does not require that Christian scientists, not to be confused with actual scientists, by the way, the church of Christian science does not require that Christian scientists avoid all medical care. Adherents use dentists, optometrists, obstetricians, physicians for broken bones, and are open to vaccination, especially when required by law, but maintains that Christian science prayer is most effective when not combined with medicine. I say that with anger, because what the heck? <laughs> they don't really believe in antibiotics, really. Um, they, they believe that you should pray instead. That is very toxic and very wrong and very just what the heck. Anyway, um, Christian science, stay away. Not to be confused with other Christian religion. To quote the beautiful Sagan, in hunter-gatherer pre-agricultural times, the human life expectancy was about 20 to 30 years. Shit. I'm about hitting 30 years, so I'd be dying pretty soon in those times. To go on. That's also what it was in Western Europe in late Roman and medieval times. It didn't rise to 40 years until around the year 1870. It reached 50 in 1915, 60 in 1930, 70 in 1955, and is today approaching 80. A little more for women, a little less for men. What is the cause of this stunning, unprecedented humanitarian transition? Well, the germ theory of disease public health measures, medicines, and medical technology. Longevity is perhaps the best single measure of the physical quality of life. If you're dead, there's little you can do to be happy. This is a precious offering from science to humanity. Nothing less than the gift of life. But microorganisms mutate. New diseases spread like wildfire. There is a constant battle between microbial measures and human countermeasures. We keep pace in this competition not just by designing new drugs and treatments, but by penetrating progressively more deeply toward an understanding of the nature of life. Basic research. I know that science and technology are not just cornucopias pouring gifts out into the world. Scientists not only conceived nuclear weapons, they also took political leaders by the lapels arguing that their nation, whichever it happened to be, had to have the first one. Then they manufactured over 60,000 of them. During the Cold War, scientists in the United States, the Soviet Union, China, and other nations were willing to expose their own fellow citizens to radiation, in most cases without their knowledge, to prepare for war. Nuclear war. 
to go on, physicians in Tuskegee, Alabama, misled a group of veterans into thinking they were receiving medical treatment for their syphilis, when really they were the untreated controls. The atrocious cruelties of Nazi doctors are well known. Our technology has produced thalidomide, CFCs, which are carbofluorocarbons, Agent Orange, nerve gas, pollution of air and water, species extinctions, and industries so powerful they can ruin the climate of the planet. Roughly half the scientists on Earth work at least part-time for the military. While a few scientists are still perceived as outsiders, courageously criticizing the ills of society and providing early warnings of potential technological catastrophes, many are seen as compliant opportunists or as the willing source of corporate profits and weapons of mass destruction, never mind the long-term consequences. The technological perils that science serves up, its implicit challenge to received wisdom and its perceived difficulty, are all reasons for some people to mistrust and avoid it. There's a reason people are nervous about science and technology. And so, the image of the mad scientist haunts our world. Oof. Yeah, science can be bad, and it has been, and we've seen it. But as I've mentioned, and as Carl has mentioned, and can also be really, really good for us, and it has been really good for us, and if we focus on the good, and, and we help to mitigate the bad as much as we can, we will be better off. So don't grow weary, my friends. Science is good, but it can also be bad, and I think what makes it bad is the human factor. The very fact that humans tend to be very violent. And hopefully we can come to a world where violence isn't really a thing anymore. But, you know, we got to deal with what we have now. And with that, I, uh, I will go on to another really important question. Do we care what is true? Should we care about the truth? Or is it better to be willfully ignorant? Talked about this a little bit prior to this part of the podcast. Ignorance is bliss. Fuck that. Okay, to go on, it's disheartening to discover government corruption and incompetence, for example. But is it better not to know about it? Whose interest does ignorance serve if we humans bear, say, hereditary propensities toward the hatred of strangers? Isn't self-knowledge the only antidote? If we long to believe that the stars rise and set for us, that we are the reason there is a universe? Does science do us a disservice in deflating our conceits? To discover that the universe is some 8 to 15 billion and not 6 to 12,000 years old improves our appreciation of its sweep and grandeur. To entertain the notion that we are a particularly complex arrangement of atoms and not some breath of divinity at the very least, enhances our respect for atoms. To discover, as now seems probable, that our planet is one of billions of other worlds in the Milky Way galaxy, and that our galaxy is one of billions more, majestically expounds the arena of what is possible. To find that our ancestors were also the ancestors of apes ties us to the rest of life, and makes possible important, if occasionally rueful, reflections of human nature. Plainly, there is no way back. Like it or not, we are stuck with science. 
we had better make the best of it. When we finally come to terms with it and fully recognize its beauty and its power, we will find, in spiritual as well as in practical matters, that we have made a bargain strongly in our favor. But superstition and pseudoscience keep getting in the way, distracting all the Buckleys among us, providing easy answers, dodging skeptical scrutiny, casually pressing our awe buttons and cheapening the experience, making us routine and comfortable practitioners as well as victims of credulity. Yes, the world would be a more interesting place if there were UFOs lurking in the deep waters off Bermuda and eating ships and planes, or if dead people could take control of our hands and write us messages. It would be fascinating if adolescents were able to make telephone handsets rocket off their cradles just by thinking at them, or if our dreams could, more often than can be explained by chance and our knowledge of the world, accurately foretell the future. These are all instances of pseudoscience. They purport to use the methods and findings of science, while in fact they are faithless to its nature, often because they are based on insufficient evidence or because they ignore clues that point the other way. They ripple with gullibility, with the uninformed cooperation and often the cynical connivance of newspapers, magazines, book publishers, radio, television, movie producers, and the like. Such ideas are easily and widely available. Far more difficult to come upon, as I was reminded by my encounter with Mr. Buckley, are the alternative, more challenging, and even more dazzling findings of science. And when Carl Sagan says alternative, he's not talking about the stupid thing that we're dealing with with alternative facts here. He's talking about the alternative of pseudoscience being science is so much more cooler and so much more closer to the truth. To go on, pseudoscience is easier to contrive than science because distracting confrontations with reality where we cannot control the outcome of their comparison are more readily avoided. The standards of argument, what passes for evidence, are much more relaxed. In part for these same reasons, it is much easier to present pseudoscience to the general public than science but this isn't enough to explain its popularity. Naturally, people try various belief systems on for size to see if they help. And if we're desperate enough, we become all too willing to abandon what may be perceived as the heavy burden of skepticism. Pseudoscience speaks to powerful emotional needs that science often leaves unfulfilled. It caters to fantasies about personal powers we lack and long for like those attributed to comic book heroes today, and earlier, to the gods. In some of its manifestations, it offers satisfaction of spiritual hungers, cures for disease, promises that death is not the end. It reassures us of our cosmic centrality and importance. It vouchsafes that we are hooked up with, tied to, the universe. Sometimes it's kind of a halfway house between old religion and new science, mistrusted by both. At the heart of some pseudoscience, and some religion also, new age and old, is the idea that wishing makes it so. How satisfying it would be, as in folklore and children's stories, to fulfill our heart's desire just by wishing. 
how seductive this notion is, especially when compared with the hard work and good luck usually required to achieve our hopes. The enchanted fish or the genie from the lamp will grant us three wishes. Anything we want except more wishes. Who has not pondered, just to be on the safe side, just in case we ever came upon and accidentally rub an old squat brass oil lamp, what to ask for? I know personally I have thought about it through watching Aladdin and the beautiful Robin Williams play the genie. You know, I've, always, I've wished for things to come true, and on a personal note, when my mother was diagnosed with cancer a long time ago, I wished and wished and wished and wished that everything was going to be okay. And unfortunately, she passed away, and uh, wishing didn't do the trick. And anyway, not to down the mood, but wishing only gets you so far. I think what's good about it is that it gives us a sense of comfort. It even shows us that sometimes things are out of our control. And, you know, when my mother was diagnosed with cancer, it was out of my control. I was a little kid. I knew nothing about the medical field, and I still don't. And there was nothing I could do other than hope and wish. And I don't think there's anything wrong with that. It's just when you only do that and you don't go out and just act on things and try to make things better. You know, it's hard to act on when someone has cancer, but what you can do is appreciate the time you have with that person and hope as much as you can that they'll get through it. And in the meantime, follow directions from doctors who have studied this disease for years and try your best to get through it. But anyway, Sagan continues in this chapter, and he talks about the many different pseudoscience examples of other countries. In the rest of this book, he, he plans to mostly speak to the ones that are prevalent in the United States, but he kind of goes through a bunch of different examples from many different places. And one of them that stuck out to me that I think is worth going over is, is the fact that in Africa, that they're still burning witches, or who they think are witches. And I, and I actually looked this up, and apparently it's true. I found a story of a woman in Ghana, Africa, that was outcasted to a witch village because someone died and the village fortune teller said it was this person that caused the death and called her a witch. And this is where pseudoscience is just not great. The fact that we still have fortune tellers in other third world countries and so on is just alarming and I hope we can get to a time where the whole entire world can be more focused on science and not pseudoscience. To go on... Sagan says, At each relinquishing of civil controls in scientific education, another little spurt in pseudoscience occurs. This is going back to who we elect in government and the choices that they make and how it affects our scientific literacy. He mentions in his book a quote from Leon Trotsky. On the night before Hitler took over Germany, he said, Not only in peasant homes but also in city skyscrapers, there lives alongside the 20th century, the 13th. A hundred million people use electricity and still believe in the magic powers of signs and exorcisms. That's still true today. And you don't even need to talk about electricity. You could talk about everything else. There's so much more technology now that it's insane that people believe in exorcisms and ghosts and haunted houses and so on. And I understand the popularization of all of that in Halloween, and it's fun to kind of fantasize, but 
when you actually believe in that stuff, that's where I take offense. It kind of makes me really disappointed in those that believe in that stuff. The reason why it bothers me so much is because it's embracing pseudoscience and ignoring facts and ignoring the fact that you're fallible. And in this book, it talks more and more about this. In our age of technology, where we should be well-informed, there are many people that still believe in ghosts. They believe in haunted houses. They believe in being able to talk to the dead with a Ouija board. Some people even believe that Carol Baskin didn't kill her husband. The list just goes on. To go on and talk a little bit more about the Tsars of Russia, quote, Russia is an instructive case. Under the Tsars, religious superstition was encouraged, but scientific and skeptical thinking, except by a few tame scientists, was ruthlessly expunged. Under communism, both religion and pseudoscience were systematically suppressed, except for the superstition of the state ideological religion. It was advertised as scientific, but fell as far short of this ideal as the most unselfcritical mystery cult. Critical thinking, except by scientists in hermetically sealed compartments of knowledge, was recognized as dangerous, was not taught in the schools, and was punished where expressed. As a result, post-communism, many Russians view science with suspicion. When the lid was lifted, as was also true of virulent ethnic hatreds, what had all along been bubbling subsurface was exposed to view. The region is now awash in UFOs, poltergeists, faith leaders, quack medicines, magic waters, and old-time superstition. A stunning decline in life expectancy, increasing infant mortality, which means infants are dying more, rampant epidemic disease, subminimal medical standards, and ignorance of preventative medicine all work to raise the threshold at which skepticism is triggered in an increasingly desperate population. Communist China was dealing with a very similar issue that Russia was dealing with in terms of people believing in all these pseudosciences and, and so on. And uh, in 1994, the government of China and the Chinese Communist Party were alarmed by it. And so they issued a joint proclamation that read in part, quote, Public education in science has been withering in recent years. At the same time, activities of superstition and ignorance have been growing, and anti-science and pseudoscience cases have become frequent. Therefore, effective measures must be applied as soon as possible to strengthen public education in science. The level of public education in science and technology is an important sign of the national scientific accomplishment. It is a matter of overall importance in economic development, scientific advance, and the progress of society. We must be attentive and implement such public education as part of the strategy to modernize our socialist country and to make our nation powerful and prosperous. Ignorance is never socialist, nor is poverty. So China knew what the heck they were doing. And maybe that's why China is uh, so successful today holding a lot of wealth and a lot of technology and science. I mean, what, they make, like, one of the best phones out there, Huawei, I heard. And they, they do a lot of great things scientifically, even though they do also steal and so on. But anyway, 
The government of China issued that proclamation in order to doust people who believe in pseudoscience, which I think is important, and, and I think it's also something I wish we could do here. Um, with the current president we have, I don't think he'll issue any kind of proclamation because he loves pseudoscience and he pushes it as hard as he can. Um, to speak of another president that was also kind of crazy and did terrible things is the one that we have now. Um, I'd like to quote uh, Carl Sagan again about this crazy fact about Nancy and Ronald Reagan. Goodness. Apparently, Nancy and Ronald Reagan relied on a private astrologer in private and public matters, unknown to the voting public. Wow. We had an actual U.S. president consult an astrologer about presidential scheduling and, and, and probably even political choices. In my research, I couldn't find any specific cases where Ronald Reagan made a choice based on his private astrologer other than her scheduling when he was going to do debates and when he was going to you know go out in public for all these different reasons by reading astrology signs and being completely ridiculous but anyway could you imagine reagan starting a war on drugs <laughs> can you imagine how that goes out and he talks to his private astrologer and the astrologer says hey ron the aquarius something terrible is going to happen unless you start a war on drugs and imprison a bunch of people for getting high Big oof. Militarize the police and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We need to attack the poverty and lock everybody up who's poor and let's not go to the colleges and get those kids for cocaine. Instead, let's get the kids that are poor in the projects. I did a little more, little bit more research and based on an article I found, which seemed pretty legit, Donald Reagan, Reagan's chief of staff until he was ousted amid the Iran-Contra scandal, spilled in his 1988 book, For the Record, what he viewed as the most closely guarded domestic secret of the Reagan White House. He wrote that virtually every major move and decision the Reagans made during my time as White House Chief of Staff was clearly in advance with a woman in San Francisco who drew up horoscopes to make certain that the planets were in a favorable alignment for the Enterprise. Holy crap. Of course, Nancy, Nancy Reagan, tries to say the astrologists only dealt with their schedule. And she talked about this in her book, My Turn. Um, the astrologist who they consulted was named Joan Quigley. And she took exception to uh, this comment. And she told the Los Angeles Times, quote, I would participate in a more intimate way than the publicly recognized insiders of greatest importance. Wow. I wonder if Joan advised Reagan to start the war on drugs. I wonder, you know, how many, time, how many things she might have said to him that he made policy changes and executive decisions for our country based on somebody who was practically just using stupid pseudoscience that does not mean anything and instead of making changes based on science and factual information, Ronald Reagan may have consulted this person to, to start the war on drugs, which is one of the major reasons the protests that are happening today. One of the major reasons why there's so many issues, you know, other than slavery in the obvious, is because of the new Jim Crow, which is 
the war on drugs and the fact that police go to poor neighborhoods and bust black people for drugs. And by the way, Black Lives Matter. If you want to learn more about this stuff, uh, you can read The New Jim Crow or you can watch the, the Netflix show The 13th. Um, I haven't seen that one yet, but I, I know that it covers a lot of what The New Jim Crow, which is a book, discusses. And and what it talks about is the, the repercussions of, of Ronald Reagan's horrific choice to selectively target poor people in mostly black neighborhoods for drug crimes. The very fact that we've had one affirmed president use an astrologer to make decisions for our country should alarm everybody listening. It alarms me. And with that, I say you might think that pseudoscience only affects those who aren't smart or intelligent. But I'm sad to inform you that it isn't true. Some people with advanced degrees in physics and engineering believe in the same crazy things you know, that Ronald Reagan maybe believed in back then. They also believe that, you know, houses can be haunted, that, you know, ghosts are real, that despite the lacking evidence, Sasquatch is a real thing, you know. Sorry, Jola. But, um, yeah, uh, to go on in the book, let you guys think on those points while I uh, take a sip of water. Uh, this next portion is going to be a pretty long reading, um, but I think it's a very important reading, and I don't think I should skip it. It's the very end of the chapter, which means we're almost at the end of the podcast. But here we go. Carl Sagan, quote, In certain passages of this book, I will be critical of the excesses of theology, because at the extremes it is difficult to distinguish pseudoscience from rigid doctrinaire religion. Nevertheless, I want to acknowledge at the outset the prodigious diversity and complexity of religious thought and practice over the millennia. The growth of liberal religion and ecumenical fellowship during the last century and the fact that, as in the Protestant Reformation, the rise of Reformed Judaism, Vatican II, and the so-called higher criticism of the Bible— Religion has fought, with varying degrees of success, its own excesses. But in parallel to the many scientists who seem reluctant to debate or even publicly discuss pseudoscience, many proponents of mainstream religions are reluctant to take on extreme conservatives and fundamentalists. If the trend continues, eventually the field is theirs. They can win the debate by default. One religious leader writes to me of his longing for disciplined, integrity, and religion. Quote, We have grown far too sentimental. Devotionalism and cheap psychology on one side, and arrogance and dogmatic intolerance on the other, distort authentic religious life almost beyond recognition. Sometimes I come close to despair, but then I live tenaciously and always with hope. Honest religion more familiar than its critics with the distortions and absurdities perpetrated in its name, has an active interest in encouraging a healthy skepticism for its own purposes. There is the possibility for religion and science to forge a potent partnership against pseudoscience. Strangely, I think it would soon be engaged also in opposing pseudo-religion. To quote Carl Sagan again, Pseudoscience differs from erroneous science. 
Science thrives on errors, cutting them away one by one. False conclusions are drawn all the time, but they are drawn tentatively. Hypotheses are framed so they are capable of being disproved. A succession of alternative hypotheses is confronted by experiment and observation. Science gropes and staggers toward improved understanding. Proprietary feelings are of course offended when a scientific hypothesis is disproved, but such disproofs are recognized as central to the scientific enterprise. Pseudoscience is just the opposite. Hypotheses are often framed precisely so they are invulnerable to any experiment that offers a prospect of disproof, so even in principle they cannot be invalidated. Practitioners are defensive and wary. Skeptical scrutiny is opposed. When the pseudoscientific hypothesis fails to catch fire with scientists, conspiracies to suppress it are deduced. Motor ability in healthy people is almost perfect. We rarely stumble and fall, except in young and old age. We can learn tasks such as riding a bicycle or skating or skipping, jumping rope or driving a car, and retain that mastery for the rest of our lives. Even if we've gone a decade without doing it, it comes back to us effortlessly. The precision and retention of our motor skills may, however, give us a false sense of confidence in our other talents. Our perceptions are fallible. We sometimes see what isn't there. We are prey to optical illusions. Occasionally we hallucinate. We are error-prone. A most illuminating book called How We Know What Isn't So, The Fallibility of Human Reason in Everyday Life by Thomas Gilovich shows how people systematically err in understanding numbers, in rejecting unpleasant evidence, in being influenced by the opinions of others. We're good in some things, but not in everything. Wisdom lies in understanding our limitations. For man is a giddy thing, teaches William Shakespeare. That's where the stuffy skeptical rigor of science comes in. To continue quoting Sagan, Perhaps the sharpest distinction between science and pseudoscience is that science has a far keener appreciation of human imperfections and fallibility than does pseudoscience. If we resolutely refuse to acknowledge where we are liable to fall into error, then we can confidently expect that error. Even serious error, profound mistakes, will be our companion forever. But if we are capable of a little courageous self-assessment, whatever rueful reflections they may engender, our chances improve enormously. If we teach only the findings and products of science, no matter how useful and even inspiring they may be, without communicating its critical method, how can the average person possibly distinguish science from pseudoscience? Both, then, are presented as unsupported assertion. In Russia and China, it used to be easy. Authoritative science was what the authorities taught. The distinction between science and pseudoscience was made for you. No perplexities needed to be muddled through, but when profound political changes occurred and strictures on free thought were loosened, a host of confident and charismatic claims especially those that told us what we wanted to hear, gained a vast following. Every notion, however improbable, became authoritative. 
it is a supreme challenge for the popularizer of science to make clear the actual torturous history of its great discoveries and the misapprehensions and occasional stubborn refusal by its practitioners to change course. Many, perhaps most, science textbooks for budding scientists tread lightly here. It is enormously easier to present in an appealing way the wisdom distilled from centuries of patient and collective interrogation of nature than to detail the messy distillation apparatus. The method of science, as stodgy and grumpy as it may seem, is far more important than the findings of science. End quote. That is the end of this chapter in the demon-haunted world. And to point out, when he started talking about the authoritative China and Russia letting loose and letting people have more free thought, when I think about Plato's Republic, which was a story about, well, more of a philosophical conversation of what a perfect and healthy city may look like, Plato noted that people who partook in the imitation of the forms, which are pretty much truth. One of the common ones was, you know, there's a form of a chair. It's a really dumb way to talk about it, but in philosophy, you think about what makes a chair a chair. And the idea is that there is a form up there. There is things about what makes a chair a chair, a chair. And what those things are is that form. And when I talk about the forms of Plato... I usually like to think about math. Math is probably one of the most perfect things that we have in our lives that match to what forms could be. But when people imitate the forms, or when people imitate truth, and they, and they misguide others, in Plato's Republic, those people had no place in his city. If somebody was walking around and spreading fantasy stories, you did not want to be in that city. It was not a city for you. It was not healthy to be that way. And so when you think about it this way, and we think about America right now, we have so many stories in our lives that are fantasy and that are just aren't real. And the hard thing to do is to separate those from what is real. And I can leave you with that, I suppose. I probably went a little too far on what forms are, but if you ever want to look into it, you can. Plato has a lot of free stuff out there now, considering he's a very old philosopher from ancient Greece. And that is the end of the show with Joe. We just went over the first chapter of The Demon Haunted World, The Most Precious Thing, where we talked about how important it is to understand the scientific method. Hope you all have a good week, or a good month, or a good year. Don't know when you're listening to this, but good night. Best regards. Joe. Joe the Joe Badeau.